I read an article a couple weeks ago about a young woman, Brittany Sanchez, 32, mother of two small kids, and it's late at night, one night, and she's getting those two kids ready for bed, doing the whole bedtime routine with toothbrushing and pajamas, and anybody who's a parent is immediately sympathetic with her. So she's doing this bedtime routine with her kids, and suddenly she starts to not feel right. She ends up having a seizure and falls to the ground. So she's rushed to the hospital, and at the hospital they do a brain scan. It reveals she's got an aggressive brain tumor. Of course, her parents come to be at her side during this whole process. Her mom will not leave the hospital with her daughter during all of this, and it's decided she's going to have to have a really serious and complicated surgery. So shortly before that, her mom runs home to get a change of clothes, get a couple groceries together, bring some snacks back to the hospital, and her daughter calls her from her hospital bed. She says, Mom, you're not going to be able to come back in because of these new coronavirus restrictions. You can't come back to the hospital. And immediately her mom and dad are just overcome with anxiety and fear and anger. And they call the the hospital just in a rage that the hospital won't let them in to see their daughter. In fact, the next day they storm the hospital and they tell the security guard, you're going to have to call the police. We're going to be with our daughter. Ends up, she has to be transferred to do this surgery to a different hospital. And that hospital is also in lockdown because of the coronavirus. And the surgeon, Dr. Berger, calls the parents and begins to explain to them the surgery he's about to perform on their daughter and on her brain. He tells them it's a really complicated surgery and there's a really high likelihood that there will be complications. And then he says, despite my best efforts, I am, I'm not able to get you two in to see your daughter before this surgery. And so the night beforehand, her dad texts this surgeon late at night. And you can just sense the desperation that he's feeling not being able to be with his daughter. And he texts Dr. Berger and he says this, you will have my daughter Brittany's life in your hands tomorrow. I expect you to treat her as if she were your own daughter. I will never forgive myself that I was not able to hold her hand through this. Bring her back to me whole. You know, this virus, the coronavirus, is touching every aspect of our lives now. Even if you're not sick, you probably know someone who has gotten sick. Your life, your job, your workplace, those things are being affected. And we hear this story about Brittany Sanchez in Las Vegas, Nevada. We realize that the anxiety her parents feel, the loneliness she feels, that really that is not far away from any one of us. In fact, there's been Highlanders here in Memphis who've been disconnected or separated from their loved ones who've gotten sick with things not even related to coronavirus right now. And of course, hospitals are doing what they need to do to protect their patients. But we realize in hearing Brittany's story that feels far away a couple weeks ago that now that that kind of isolation and loneliness is not far from any one of us. And and in a moment like that, you know, if that was you and that was your child in the hospital, what would you want more than anything else? Well, I think what you would want is someone who would intercede for you. You know, when we feel most helpless, what we long for is that there is someone out there who is not helpless and who has us in mind. Intercession. There's a group of Highlanders who come together every Thursday here at Highland. Well, at least they did until this pandemic started. And they would come together every Thursday, and they've done it for years. And they come together with one one purpose, and that is to pray for you. They come together to pray for 
Highlanders. They intercede with God in prayer for you. And most of them are retirement age. There's a lot of other stuff they could be doing in their retirement. They could be working in their garden on Thursday mornings. They could be FaceTiming with their grandkids. And they're probably doing all those things right now. And those are good things to do. But I'll promise you one thing. They are still praying for you. They're interceding for you. It's part of who they are. Where does intercessory prayer come from? You know, when you ask somebody to pray for you or somebody tells you, hey, I'm praying for you, why, where does that come from? Why, why do we do that? And the answer is really simple. Intercession comes from the life and ministry and prayer of Jesus Christ. So when we look in, chapter, in John and see the way that Jesus prays, I want you to pay attention to who he's praying for and how he's praying for them. Look at this. This is in John 17, starting in verse 6. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. This is Jesus talking to God. They were yours and you gave them to me and they have obeyed your word. Now, they know that everything you have given me comes from you for I gave them the words you gave me and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you and they believed that you sent me and I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me for they are yours. All I have is yours and all you have is mine and glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. Jesus' life and ministry were devoted to intercession for they, they. And when he says they again and again, who's he talking about? Well, he's talking about you and me. We are they, we are the they that Jesus is talking about. And it's not just that Jesus' prayer was for they, for them, for us. His whole life is lived for you and me. His death and his resurrection, like we've looked at the last few weeks, his death and resurrection are for you. And for me, Jesus' whole life was not about him. It was about intercession for you and me to the glory of God the Father. So if that's what Jesus' life and ministry were about then, you know, a fair question to ask is, what's Jesus' life and ministry about now? Or you could put it like this, what is the present ministry of Jesus? And the answer to that question is, is actually really simple. Jesus is doing the same thing now that Jesus has always done. And that is interceding for you and for me at the right hand of God. The present ministry of Jesus is the ministry of, of intercession. intercession. Do, you, uh, <clears throat> do you remember Paul Harvey? I used to listen to Paul Harvey every school morning when I was driving to work with my dad. And Paul Harvey, one of the, you know, the great American storytellers, and the way Paul Harvey told a story was always the same. He would, he would tell you some limited piece of a story. And then at the end of the story, he would have saved all the important details till the very end. And at the end, he would share those details that made the rest of the story make sense. And then Paul Harvey would always say the same thing. You remember what he would say? He'd say, and now you know the rest of the story. 
You know, when we tell the story of Jesus, we tend to leave out a really important detail. So we often start the story of Jesus with what we call the incarnation, when Jesus descends from heaven and takes on flesh in the form of Jesus the Christ, born in a manger. That's where we typically start this story, and we call that the incarnation of Jesus, and we celebrate that at Christmas time. But you may actually start the story earlier. You may go all the way back to the creation of the world because John 1 tells us that Jesus was there at creation. So our starting points differ on the story of Jesus, but then we fall in sync. And what we do is we talk about the life of Jesus, what he modeled for us as his followers in his life. We talk about the death of Jesus and the justifying gracious power of his death on the cross. We talk about the power of the resurrection when Jesus defeats death, overcomes the grave. And then we tend to move straight on to Acts 2 and the Holy Spirit and the church. And what happens is we skip the rest of the story. You know, in that narrative, we're actually skipping what may be the most important part of the life and story of Jesus Christ. And and that most important part is worth paying attention to because it has profound implications for our lives today. And what that part is, is what we call the ascension of Jesus Christ. When Jesus is raised after 40 days of life on earth after his resurrection, when he is raised back up into heaven, we call that the ascension or the exaltation of Jesus. And we often don't tell that story. Now, if you grew up in church, you definitely heard that story at some point. Some, some sweet senior saint told you that story in your Sunday school class, and she probably used a flannel graph to tell it to you, and they had little cloud flannel graph pieces, and Jesus would ride up on one of those clouds like Aladdin on his magic carpet, and he would head off the top of the flannel graph, and then boom, there would be fire and doves and the Holy Spirit descending on the apostles, and then you'd be taken away in the story of the early church, and you'd move right past that story of Jesus riding up, ascending into heaven. Well, that scene is so important. In fact, it's so important in scripture that that scene is told twice. Uh, The ascension of Jesus, his exaltation is, is sometimes called the linchpin in the gospel story. Because Luke ends the first version of the gospel story in Gospel of Luke, his first version, he ends with the story of the ascension. This is what we read. When he had led them out of the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and he blessed them. He's talking about Jesus. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. And then they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. So that's the first volume in Luke's gospel story. But but Luke actually wrote two volumes. The first is what we call the Gospel of Luke. The second is what we call Acts or the Acts of the Apostles. And so he ends his first volume with the Ascension, but then he picks up again in Acts, the second volume, with the same story, only with more details. So this is in Acts chapter 1. We read this. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up into heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. And then, verse 6, they gathered around him and asked, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you 
and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. And after he had said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. Now there's some details in this story you see there in Acts 1. I skipped a couple of verses and that's because we're gonna come back to those details in the next couple of weeks. What I want you to see here is that Luke really believed that the ascension of Jesus was critical to understanding the full story of Jesus in Luke and their continuing story of Jesus in Acts. That this ascension is the linchpin that moves between the two of those. And as such, he not only ends his first story with it, but he starts his second story with it. The ascension of Jesus is critical. And you might be asking, well, why? You know, why did Jesus get carried up on the clouds into heaven? You know, it, it would have been kind of awesome if Jesus just would have stayed here. I mean, wouldn't it, be, wouldn't it be cool if you could just call Jesus up on the phone and y'all could go meet up for a burger or something, you know, as long as you stayed six feet away from each other? I mean, wouldn't that, be, wouldn't that be great if Jesus was here on the scene right now? Well, okay, yes, that would be wonderful. That would be awesome. But Jesus actually says, this is better for us that he goes. Jesus actually tells us that one of the chief reasons he ascends is because it is better for us. And that when Jesus ascends, he continues the ministry begun on earth. And that ministry is this, interceding for you and me in the throne room of God. That that's why he goes back to heaven. One of my heroes is a really incredible man named Brian Stevenson. Stevenson is a lawyer based in Alabama. He started what's called the Equal Justice Initiative. And a couple of years ago, I was turned on to his book called Just Mercy, which is the story of the, the founding of the Equal Justice Initiative, which is an organization, a legal organization, that among many other things now started and continues to defend those on death row. And in the story, he, he describes this character that we follow throughout the book named Walter McMillan. And McMillan is a man who's been wrongly accused of murder and he's on death row. And Stevenson learns about his case, begins to know Walter McMillan, Walter McMillan and ultimately he intercedes for him. He intercedes for McMillan in the court system until McMillan is free. It's this really beautiful scene and this kind of vision of what intercession looks like. Well, Brian Stevenson would have to raise support for his Equal Justice Initiative nonprofit. And so he would travel around often to churches to raise that support. And in one church, he, he tells this scene of an old timer who rolls up to him on a wheelchair. And this is the scene, the exchange that they have together. <clears throat> he stopped in front of me. He leaned forward in his wheelchair and he said forcefully, do you know what you're doing? And he looked very serious and he wasn't smiling. His question threw me. And he then wagged his finger at me and he asked again, do you know what you're doing? And I tried to smile to diffuse the situation. But I, was, I was completely baffled. I, I, I think so. He cut me off and he said loudly, I'll tell you what you're doing. You're beating the drum for justice. You've got to beat the drum for justice. And he leaned forward again and he said hoarsely, you got to keep beating the drum 
for justice. That's a powerful image, isn't it? That what intercession is, is is beating this drum for justice. And like Stephen's book hints at, his book, Just Mercy, that justice and mercy are two sides of the same coin. And what we know to be true is that intercession isn't just beating a drum for justice, but also at times beating a drum for mercy. You may remember this story of Abraham. This is in Genesis 18. God has decided that he's going to destroy this terrible town of Sodom, this this place that is filled with evil and wickedness. And Abraham goes to God and he begins to intercede. He says, God, would would you really destroy Sodom if there was 50 righteous people there? And God says, well, I guess if there was 50, I wouldn't do it. And Abraham continues, he says, okay, okay, what about 45? And God says, okay, 45, yeah, yeah, I won't do it if there's 45 righteous people. And Abraham says, what about 40? What about 30? What about 20? What about 10? What's he doing? He's he's interceding. And in this case, he's beating this drum for mercy. God, be merciful on these people. And he's just beating that drum. So what does that have to do with the ascension of Jesus? Well, you may remember a couple weeks ago, I told the story of C.S. Lewis. I've I've used C.S. Lewis in a number of sermons now, and frankly, I'm going to keep doing it because I love C.S. Lewis. But C.S. Lewis tells the story of losing his wife, whom he loved, and then he goes to God in prayer. And what he describes is going to God in prayer and hearing the, the doors of heaven slammed shut in his face, and hearing on the inside the, the locks being bolted from inside the door, like he's trying to get into God, but he can't get in to see God. And that's a metaphor. He's not saying that is true, but he's saying that's ex- his experience when he was hurting is going to God and finding the door locked. Well, I want you to pay attention to how Paul describes where Jesus is now and what Jesus is doing there. This is in Romans 8, starting in verse 31. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Who then is it that condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died more than that who was raised to life, pay attention, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it's written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. I mean, some people think Romans 8 is the greatest chapter in the Bible, and it's hard for me to disagree. Right? If God is for us, who can be against us? In Him we are more than conquerors. Nothing, not a thing can separate us from the love of Christ. 
I think it's hard to find words that are more powerful, promises that speak to us more in this moment and in every moment of our life. But did you notice what makes those promises true? You know, on what are those promises conditioned? On what are they based? What's the foundation? Well, it's this. The foundation is that Jesus not only died and was not only raised, but that God continued to raise Jesus until he was seated at his side, at the right hand of God on the throne in heaven. That that's where Jesus is now. And it's because Jesus is there that he's now interceding for us eternally. It's because he's there that we cannot be separated from the love of God because he is in that throne room. You know, you gotta recognize here that the reason we can't be separated from the love of Christ, the reason that we are more than conquerors, you know, the reason that if God is for us, no one, not anyone can be against us is precisely because Jesus is inside the throne room, interceding for you and me. You know, Lewis describes going to this throne room door and finding it locked and bolted from the inside. And the message coming back to us from Scripture and in the ascension of Jesus is that He is in that room. And that because Jesus is in that room, because He returned to heaven, He is there right now for you and me beating this drum for justice and mercy. So now in the justifying credentials of the cross that He carries back to heaven with Him, And in the resurrection power that he returns to heaven in, he intercedes for you and me at God's right hand and he will be there forever interceding for us. You know, like Brian Stevenson in his work with the Equal Justice Initiative, Romans 8 pictures a a courtroom scene. And in this courtroom scene, God is the judge and jury. And these charges have been brought against you and me in this courtroom scene. And, And God in this scene is faced with deciding what you and I deserve based on what we have merited in our life. And I'll tell you, that's not only a frightening prospect, that is a debilitating prospect. You know, I know my own life and I know how undeserving I am of God's grace, but I'm reminded of this story in the Old Testament. You remember the story of Job? You know, we are told that Job was the most righteous person in the world. Like if there was ever anybody who could stand up in that courtroom of God and come out on top, it was Job. And then when Job's life, his whole life, his family, all his possessions are taken away from him, Job says this. Listen to how he describes the courtroom scene of God. He says this, He, God, is not a mere mortal like me that I might answer him, that we might confront each other in court. If only there was someone to mediate between us someone to bring us together, someone to remove God's rod from me so that his terror would frighten me no more. And then I would speak up without fear of him. But as it now stands with me, I cannot. You know, if only there was someone to mediate between us. And I'll tell you, what he's longing for is an intercessor. He's longing for someone who can enter into the throne room of God and make a case for him. And what you and I know is that we have what Job didn't have. 
but in Jesus Christ who died justifying me and justifying you, who was raised to new life, providing us hope, that in him who now was raised again and sits eternally on the throne, we have one in that throne room who is beating the drum of justice and mercy for us. And when God hears our prayers, he hears those prayers filtered through that drumbeat for mercy. And when he hears you cry out, what he actually hears is his son saying, Father, forgive him. Father, have mercy on her. Father, save them. And when he looks at you, what he sees is his son at his right hand. That's what he sees and hears now. And in this moment of pandemic, you know, you're, you're praying, right, that God would heal you, protect you, that he would put, place his shield, his comforting presence around you. And you are scared. And I'm scared. And I think about what Brian Stevenson said about mercy. And in a moment like this, it sounds so true. He said this, it's when mercy is least expected that it's most potent, strong enough to break the cycle of victimhood, of retribution and suffering. It has the power to heal. I've been thinking a lot about that Sanchez family in Las Vegas. She did make it through the surgery and she's doing well. And I've been thinking about them and that anxiety that her parents felt because they couldn't be with her, their daughter. And I know if that was my kid, that's how I would feel too. If I was separated from my kid when they were sick, I mean, the burden of that would be more than I could stand. But But here's our hope. Here's our hope. You know, here's the hope of those who follow Jesus. And if I could talk to Brittany's parents, this is what I'd tell them. This is our hope. What matters is not that you are in the surgical room. What matters is that he is in the throne room. That's what matters. And he is. And as such, he is our hope. Our hope is in the one who intercedes for you and for me right now and forever. See ya.